Our scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Even on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this, in this, giving, or in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. A couple of weeks ago, Helen told me there was a voicemail for me uh, in the office here, so I hit the little envelope button on my phone and heard the following message. Hi. This is Ruth, and this call is coming into your life right now for a reason. Now, if you've ever heard like an automated message, like usually with like three or four words in, you're hanging up. But with, a, with an opener like that, you've got to listen, right? Like, I'm not hanging up. What is the reason for this message? Like, this is exciting stuff. And she continued, Ruth, that is, if you're someone who has been looking for a financial lifeline, and then I realized this is some kind of a sales pitch, so I hung up, and that was it. Now, I don't know whether you are looking for a financial lifeline or not, but I hope that this morning's sermon will, in a sense, come into your life for a reason, uh, that it'll be timely and encouraging and challenging all wrapped up into one. I talked to someone here this morning before the service started. They said, I love money. And I was like, I can interpret that many different ways. We're going to talk a little bit about money this morning. Because we're in the midst of a series that we're calling the Health and Wealth Gospel. We're taking a look at this kind of modern version of Christianity that says that if you just kind of have enough faith and believe enough, then you can have kind of all of the wealth and all of the health that God desires for you. And we're trying to ask questions about this and, and understand, like, what is our role in all of this? Now, it might be easy for us, I think, to say that, okay, God wants us to be healthy but what about the wealthy piece? Where does that fit in? Does God want us to be wealthy? We'll explore that a little bit. But really what I want to emphasize at the start here is that what we're trying to do in this series is realize that while having faith is a very important thing, doing things is an important thing as well. And there's a role that we are called to play with respect to all these different spheres of our lives, including the financial sphere of life. 
I finished reading a book a little while ago by Charles Dickens because you just should read Charles Dickens every once in a while. And there was a character in this book who really was inconsequential. His name was Harold Skimpole. And basically, every time this character showed up in the, in the novel, he was talking about money. But what he was talking about was that he didn't understand money. And every time someone would have a conversation, he'd say, well, I don't know anything about money. I don't understand what these things are, a pound, a shilling. What are these things? They mean nothing to me. Money is nothing to me. Um, and of course, everyone around him was kind of confused by this. And realizing that he had no way of earning money, they would just give him money and hand it out. And so I think throughout the, the book, I'm wondering, like, is this guy a little slow or is he like really clever? Because he's figured out a way to know nothing about money and then have people provide for him all through his life. I think we can do a little bit better than Harold Skimpole. I don't think we have to kind of raise our hands and say, well, I don't know anything about this, so I'll just kind of go on by. I think we can pay attention and we can learn and grow with, with respect to our responsibility around finances. Now, money's one of these things that we rarely talk to other people about, even though it tends to have a significant influence on our day-to-day -day life. And so I think maybe talking about money a little more frequently is what we need in order to avoid letting its role become either too significant or not significant enough. And this is the balance that I'm after this morning. Now, I was listening to Kristen's sermon from last Sunday morning, and I heard her say at the beginning that there were a couple of things she was not going to talk about with respect to friendships, and I thought, that's a great idea. So there are some things that I'm not going to talk about with respect to money this morning. I'm not going to stand up here and give you advice on debt consolidation. I'm not going to give you advice on where you should invest your money or on how you should prepare for retirement or on how to prepare a budget. I mean, we could talk about those things if you wanted to, um, but I'm going to talk about some other things, more about our attitude toward money. But I don't want to say, I don't think it's fair to say that, well, the church shouldn't speak to those things at all because it's a real part of our life. And so we actually have a member of our church community who's kind of stepped forward to me and said, listen, I'm kind of good at this stuff. And if someone would like to have conversation about any of those themes, I'd love to sit down over coffee and have some conversation with them. I'll let you know, unlike the voicemail message from Ruth, they are not a salesperson. They don't work in the financial industry. They just know how to handle money. And so I'll put that out there. In your program, there's a little link on our website. We've got a page uh, with his contact information. And it'll be an opportunity for you to fire an email and say, listen, Brandon didn't talk about this. I was really hoping he would. Maybe we could go get together for coffee and chat about it. So I'd encourage you to do that. I would also say that we have a few copies of a book um, that this same individual has recommended in our library. And if you look in the window of the library out in the lobby right now, you'll see it up there. And uh, you can go and sign a, sign a book out. If you're not really comfortable talking to someone about money, it might be a good opportunity to sit down and read from someone writing from a Christ Christian perspective about how to be responsible with finances. Uh, so it might be some good tools in there. So I'll leave that to you. Because money is a very practical thing. Uh, I just don't want to stand up here and be a financial advisor instead of a pastor. So I remember a conversation I had with someone last spring, and I surprised them when I told them that Jesus actually talked a lot more about money than he did about sex, because sex was kind of a theme that we talked about a lot last year. And I was saying, actually, you know, Jesus didn't have too much to say about that, but he had a lot to say about money. Jesus talks about money. He talks about wealth. He talks about possessions a lot more than you'd think. And so I want to, before we get into this morning's reading, I want to talk about what Jesus had to say about this. So we'll start with Matthew chapter 6, which is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this famous section of Jesus' teaching uh, where he talks about essentially how we ought to live our lives in, the, in light of the kingdom of God. So we're going to unpack a few verses at a time here. We'll start with verse 19. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know if any of you other Gmail users ran into this uh, this week, but there are basically three different things I do when an, inbo- when an email comes in my inbox. The first thing, I either reply to the email, delete it, or if I can't reply to it right away, but I don't want to forget about it, I will mark it as unread. And that's like my little way of saying, you know, I get, need to get back to this later. But without telling me about this, Gmail just changed the location of the marked red button. And so from now on, basically I went to the same place where I would always mark an email as unread, and when I clicked that same spot, it now said mark as not important. And I was like, what is happening here? I'm trying to say that this is important and I need to get back to it later, and I'm marking them all as not important. And eventually I realized that there's another little button that I only have to click once instead of twice. So it's convenient. But all week long I was wrestling with this, and then I'm thinking about, oh yeah, this is kind of what Jesus was talking about. We need to mark the right things as important and the right things as not important. Knowing the difference between what's important and what's not important is, well, it's important. And according to Jesus, Treasures on earth should be marked as not important. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, a few weeks ago, Owen was doing some work out of my parents' place in Wellesley, and they are getting ready to move, and so they're clearing out their basement. And one of the things that they did when he came home at the end of the day was they filled up the car with five giant boxes of my childhood treasures. So things that I collected as a young person all through the years, they sent them back, and they're like, deal with them yourself. And so I walked out into the garage, and they're like these five big boxes. And so I went through them. I've gone through four of them right now, and I've got four big boxes down into like one small box of things. And I was reading this thing about don't store up treasures for yourself. I'm like, well, come on. I mean, some treasures you you should store up, right? Like, i got to keep some things, right? And so I thought I'd give you an example of some of the things I thought worthwhile of keeping here. Like this little star chart from when I was in grade one and I was causing all kinds of trouble with my teacher. I had this star chart and I would be, you know, get a punishment of some sort or the other if I didn't get a star. You can see a fair number of stars, a few X's, a few like little, you know, marks about things. PD day, that was a free day. Couldn't do anything wrong on that day, you know. Okay, so what else? Oh, yes, an example of my art, right? Um, If I were to blossom into uh, an artist, this would probably have some value at some point to show just how talented I was when I was in grade two. Letters. There, oh, there's lots of letters in these boxes. This is a letter that uh, my parents and my brother sent to me when I was away at camp for the first time. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I got to keep a little memento of that. Or there was this letter. You can't really read it, but it's a, it's a Valentine card from a secret admirer. And I realized when I read it, I was like, who was it? Like, I never found out. And then there, there's, uh, I found some notes from a girl I dated in high school. Oh, you can't read it at all. But if you can read it here, it says, Melissa loves Brandon, and Brandon loves Melissa. And that was written on the inside of my binder. So, like, cute little keepsakes like this, right? Um, And then one of my favorite findings was this. Now, any of you who grew up in the, like, late 80s know exactly what this is. Uh, Jude was sitting with me opening these, these box of treasures, and he's like, what is that? And I said, what do you mean? It's a lucky rabbit's foot. And he's like, a what? I was like, it's a lucky rabbit's foot. Like, you rub it for good luck. And as I'm saying this, I'm like, this is really weird. And he's, but what is it? I said, well, it's actually the foot of a rabbit. Like someone cut a rabbit's foot off and put a chain on it. And then you carry it around with you. And he's like, yeah, that's just weird. (laughs) It is. So yeah, as you can see, things worth keeping, right? So some treasures we probably should hang on to. 
because they just bring back all kinds of memories. Uh, now, I think it's a healthy thing for me to get rid of these four boxes of, of other treasures, uh, but I'm pretty sure Jesus was talking about something a little more significant and probably a little more challenging when he was talking about the things that we need to let go of and the things that we need to hang on to. Peter Block, Walter Brueggemann, and John McKnight came together to write this book. And they were talking uh, at one point about something that I think is really important for us to grasp if we want to understand what Jesus was getting at. So they talk about two different kind of narratives that run, that have a potential to influence uh, our accumulation of treasure in life. The first one goes like this. You do not have enough, therefore you are not enough. They say that this is a powerful belief sustaining the market. That out there we get this message relayed to us constantly that if you don't have enough stuff, you're not enough. And so what we see on commercials and advertisement are people who have lots of stuff and it's clear that they are living the lives that we want to live. Okay, so that's the message that's out there. But they go on to say that faith communities must believe something different and that is you are enough and therefore you have enough. And this is an important thing for us to be able to grasp. And I think when Jesus is saying, don't store up all of these things to try to, to become enough in life. You already are enough, so you don't need to worry about the more and the more. What we, when we believe what God says about us, that we're enough, our craving for more subsides. Now, Jesus goes on in that same passage in the Sermon on the Mount to say that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. I'm reading a novel right now by a historian named Yuval Noah Harari. It's not a novel. It's a book he writes about kind of lessons to learn in the 21st century. He has this, st this statement he makes, and he talks about um, money, the role of money, and how money came into, like, the... the uh, how humans began to use money as a system of trade and, and how when people began to figure out that you don't actually have to trade like a, a physical thing for a physical thing, that you can use this medium of money, that it just accelerated growth and accelerated expansion in the world. He says that money is a system of mutual trust and not just any system of mutual trust. Money is the most universal and most efficient system of mutual trust ever devised. And it's fascinating reading about it, the way, the way that money kind of came onto the scene in human history and how it began to shape and form how humans interacted with each other and that there's an incredible level of trust. Like when you think about it, we hand pieces of paper to people and they give us actual physical things or we don't even hand pieces of paper to people. We just give numbers to people on a computer and they give us food or they give us a car or they give us a house. Like it's a very strange thing because there's so much trust that this exchange of money allows for us to have, which is a fantastic thing in a lot of ways. But I wonder if the kind of trust that money builds between people could also threaten the opportunity for us to build trust between ourselves and God. I wonder if our reliance too heavily on money means that we don't actually need to rely on God. I was talking about this with a group of people around a discussion table a couple of weeks ago. And I was just saying, like, in my own life, like, I want to be responsible financially. I want to plan for my future. I want to plan for the retirement years to come. But at the same time, I feel like the more I plan for that and the more responsible I am for that, am I also at the same time somehow taking God out of the picture? Like, am I not willing to trust him? It's this weird balance that I think we all have to wrestle with. We want to be responsible. We want to, to trust um, in God at the same time. It's difficult. Well, Jesus goes on in this passage to talk about the folly of worrying, specifically about the next day. Like, what are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? 
Like, why are you worrying about all these things, he says? For the pagans run after all these things. Now, pagans isn't a word that we throw around a whole lot these days, but it essentially would have meant people who believe in all kinds of gods. They run after stuff. They worry about stuff. But you, you don't worship all kinds of gods. Remember, he just said you can only worship one, God or money. You've got to pick one. He said, you don't worship multiple gods. You only worship one God, so you don't. You shouldn't be chasing after these others. For, he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So we don't need to be consumed with this worry about what we'll have. And so I get asked myself the question, am I willing to be honest enough with myself to admit when I'm acting like a pagan, when I'm running around after other things, when I'm allowing other gods in my life, right? It's easy for us to confuse sometimes. I was reading an article about this, um, how the studies have been done where the brain has been scanned while people are doing two different things. So the one thing uh, they were comparing was people thinking about, so remembering times when they had a, felt a closeness with God. And so maybe you're remembering kind of a time of, of worship together like, like we have this morning, or maybe you're remembering a, a time of prayer or of just reflection on God where you felt this closeness and this intimacy with God. And so you're remembering this, and then they're scanning the brain, and they're seeing what kind of activity is happening. And then they ask people to, take a, to think about something different. They ask people to think about material possessions. So I want you to imagine like your dream car, or I want you to imagine like your dream home, or, or I want you to Imagine like this dream like thing that you've always wanted. And what they found was that the same part of the brain was activated by thinking about these two apparently very different things. It's a part of the brain, if I can find my notes here, called the caudate nucleus. And so you see that kind of highlighted there. It's this tiny little part of the brain. And I was like, well, what is this function of this part of the brain that it would be activated by these two seemingly different activities? And I found this great line, that this caudate nucleus is involved with the selection of behavior based on the changing values of goals. So it's like, when we begin to change our goals in life, this part of our brain says, you should now start acting differently in order to accomplish this goal. And so it's like, when we're focusing on this thing, whether it's this closeness with God, or whether it's this material thing we want to get, this part of our brain is saying, okay, you're focusing on this a lot. Now we should change our behavior so that we can accomplish that goal, so we can get that thing. Isn't that profound? Jesus had no idea what brain scans would show, and yet he said you cannot worship God and money because your brain is going to make you chase after one or the other. It's how we're wired as human beings. The things we focus on become our goals and in turn affect our behavior. And this is precisely why companies spend an insane amount of money on advertising. Because if they can show us what we want, then eventually we will do the things to get the money to buy those things. We've got to be careful. But what happens in the long run? Ken Shigematsu, who's a, a pastor of a church in Vancouver, writes that ironically, if we pursue happiness through the acquisition of material possessions, we will become chronically discontent and unhappy. This is what research shows. Not in the short run, absolutely not in the short run. You can get a lot of pleasure out of material things. But in the long run, it actually doesn't give the kind of happiness a long term. There's this passage in 1 Timothy toward the end of Paul's letter to this young leader in the church that he's writing, and he gives this, this warning. It's an encouragement first, and then it turns to this warning. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Godliness with contentment, that's great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And again, long before these kinds of studies showing about the long-term you know, effects or benefits of possessions, people saying, you know, in the long run, this doesn't really work out. In the long run, people will actually even walk away from faith because for so long, we've been focused on this goal instead of this goal. Well, Lord, help us learn which things in this life should be marked as not important. Now, to the passage that Melody read for us from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And so Paul does something here that we're all told to avoid, and that is making comparisons, right? Like, we're all told, like, don't compare yourself to one another. But really, is there anything that we are better at than comparing ourselves to one another, right? We do it all the time. Siblings compare themselves to one another. Coworkers compare themselves to one another. Romantic rivals compare themselves to one another. Professionals compare themselves to one another. Even parents compare themselves to one another. I'm a way better parent than she is, right? And what kind of things do we compare? Well, we compare our success. We might compare our looks. We can compare reputation or wealth or status. We can even compare our children. My child is so much better than that child. Like, like it's crazy. But we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And so a couple of months ago, this kind of online firestorm began when someone started an Instagram account called Preachers in Sneakers. Have you maybe heard of this, all right? And so basically what this person did was they were like, they've been noticing how famous, which is kind of weird, preachers, uh, wore really expensive clothes. And so they started like looking for photos of what these famous preachers were wearing, taking pictures of them, and then looking up online what it would cost to buy the wardrobe that that person is wearing. Now, I'll just say right off the bat, it's, it's kind of weird because this is like my profession and it's weird to, to think about people spending like at the bottom was $300 on a pair of shoes, $750 on a pair of shoes, $1,500 on a jacket. I mean, it's people spending thousands of dollars on pairs of shoes or on clothes. And so this person was like, I'm going to call all these people out. I'm going to show all this waste of money that these people are, they're, they're claiming to stand for Jesus, but they're spending all this money on stuff. And this thing has gone like crazy. Like everyone's like, this is nuts. What's going on? But then of course, other people are saying, well, who are you to judge? Like who, who made you the arbiter of what people spend their money on? I mean, I look at it and I think, Man, like Jesus said to one person, like, foxes have dens, birds have nests, the son of man, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Jesus was like, I'm homeless, man. Like, he was not out there to impress people by what he's wearing. And so I look at it and say, you know, good for you, this is great. But at the same time, it, it, gets, into it, it gets into dangerous territory. And so I was reading an article this past week in the New Yorker talking about this account where they interviewed the proprietor of Preachers and Sneakers, his Instagram account, and they were asking about it. And he, he explained that he began this project in a spirit of protest. Like, I'm going to show these people up. I'm going to show how ridiculous it is that they spend this much money on stuff. But he soon shifted to self-examination. And this is what the guy said. He said, this is a pretty slippery slope 
to be judging people's hearts behind, behind how they spend. And so I think of this and like, oh man, there's one part of me that's like, man, that's just messed up. But there's this other part of me that's like, is it doing any good to me to be looking at another person and judging what they're spending their money on? Like, probably not at all, right? It's very interesting if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, not just a few verses at a time, but if you get all the way through chapter 6 where Jesus talks a lot about money and possessions and this obsession that we have with this stuff, at the very beginning of chapter 7, which I've talked to you before, you've got to be beware of these chapter breaks because often they, they miss the point, we miss something significant. At the very beginning of chapter 7, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could talk about all of the ways that Jesus is challenging the way that we think about finances and the way we handle money and stuff, and we would include in that this idea of not judging other people. So then it's a good question maybe for us to ask, why was Paul comparing the Corinthians' love to the Macedonians? Doesn't it seem like he was doing what Jesus advised us not to do? He's comparing one community of faith to another. So what was he doing there? Well, rather than pointing out another's flaws in order to justify their behavior, he was pointing out another's radical generosity to encourage self-examination. You see the difference here? He's not looking at another person saying, look at how, how messed up they are, you should feel good about yourself. He's looking at someone and saying, man, look at how generous they are. Could you do that? Let me read this passage for you from 2 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 2 to 4. Out of the most severe trial, so then this is him talking about the Macedonian church. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. That's just profound. Their extreme poverty resulted in overwhelming generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So instead of looking at person A and asking, ah, oh, how can she spend that much? Our challenge is to look at person B and ask, could I be that generous? That's a much healthier way for us to proceed in a life of faith. Now, let's go back to this passage from Matthew chapter 6 for a minute. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. There's this section, so Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven, and he talks about not serving two masters. And then right in the middle of that, he talks about the eye being the lamp of the body. And I'll read it here for a second. And I've always thought it was a little out of place. It was a little unfortunate because it doesn't seem to have a lot to do with what came before it and after it. Um, but in newer translations, uh, the people doing the translation are, have included some notes that point out an interesting wordplay that Jesus uses here. So I'll read the passage um, from here. So the eye, well, that's funky. Okay, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, the version in, on the pages of my Bible here says, if your eyes are, 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 are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So there's this sense of people wrestling, translators wrestling with this, what, what do these words mean? like good, healthy. So there's this note now in, in the newest translations of the Bible that says uh, that the Greek word for healthy, it actually implies generous. And the Greek word that's translated unhealthy actually implies stingy. And now this little section that Jesus is saying, it starts to make sense why it fits in between the treasures in heaven and you can't, you can't serve God in money. He's like, if you see the world in a generous way, if your eyes are generous, 
then your life will be full of light. But if you have a stingy view of the world, if your eyes are bad or unhealthy or stingy, your life will just be shrouded in darkness. It's an interesting way for us to think about things. Again, Ken Shigematsu writes, though generosity may not make sense logically, it does make sense theologically because God is faithful. And so viewing the world and living in the world with a perspective of generosity, it's an act of trust. I can be generous because I know God is faithful and he will take care of the needs that I have in life. By living with generosity, we position ourselves to trust in God's faithfulness and the result is a life that's full of light is the language that Jesus used. So back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we've kindled in you, since you excel in all these things, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now that's a great line right there, the grace of giving. Now if you've been around a church for long enough, you've probably experienced a little bit of the ungrace of giving, the pressure of giving, the guilt of giving. I was talking to someone recently, they said they have a member of their extended family who's a traveling preacher, and there was this example um, given of a time where they, were, where they were calling on people to make a donation, and they said that God had told them that someone was going to make a particular donation, and that the doors were to be locked until the donation was made, that no one was going to leave until the donation is made. And I was going to have our ushers lock the doors at the back here just as an example. There's all kinds of ways that we can be pressured into giving, where we can feel like, like we have to give, like, like giving is not an act of grace, but it's an act of compulsion. It's something we're forced to do. But is that what giving is about? Is that what generosity is all about? No, it's about something that, that we willingly allow ourselves to. Think again about the way that Paul was writing about the Macedonians. He's like, they were basically like begging for an opportunity to give. Like that's graceful giving. So we have this piece in our key values of our church called Shared Responsibility, where it says that we support Elevation and its mission by participating in the life of the community and taking ownership for the corporate aspects of the church. The entire body benefits as we give generously of our time, abilities, and finances, putting the needs of others before ourselves. So once again, our goals affect our behavior. We have this goal, this vision for this healthy community, and we realize that our behavior is going to change in order to match that. When followers of Jesus take their finances seriously, they stop just looking at their own books and accept the call to bring a little more balance across the board. So when we talk about balancing the books, it's not just your book, your family budget, but it's the broader picture of our community of faith and of the world that we live in. How do we balance those books? I read this great quote a couple of weeks ago uh, from a guy named Steve Geyer. He says, and I've illustrated it for you here, but the quote is, when those of us with more than enough move toward enough, then those who don't have enough can have enough. That's balancing the books right there. All right. So the letter, the passage that we read from this morning is from 2 Corinthians, which tells you that there was a first letter. Um, in the first letter of the Corinthians, Paul wrote to them, and he said, okay, here's the deal. I want you to, to make some plans. I want, at the beginning of every week, I want you to set aside a, a sum of money in keeping with your income, just set a little bit aside, and then when I come around again, we'll have this big offering, and it's going to be great, and we'll help meet the needs of all the churches. So he challenges them, and so this passage in 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about this generosity, he's following up on a commitment they've already made. And so he says, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. 
according to your means. And all of this talk about generosity, we have to talk about what this means. There's this great story of Jesus uh, standing in the temple, watching people putting money into the treasury. It's like the most awkward thing ever, right? It'd be like if I just stood at the door and, and watched to see how much everyone put in the offering basket. Like, what would be more awkward than that? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And then he, he calls everyone out on it. He said, you know, there are, there are wealthy people here giving a lot. But this one woman came up here, and she gave this, this little penny, this little mite, like basically nothing. It's worth essentially nothing. But he said, it's really, it's all that she had to live on. Now that is generosity right there. Out of her poverty, she put in everything Jesus said. And that's the same kind of thing that Paul is echoing here. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And so again, we certainly have to get away from this comparison game where we're looking down at other people for their choices. We've got to move to the comparison game where we're being challenged and inspired by the generosity of others. But we also have to be cautious that we're not experiencing guilt or compulsion in giving because we can't give as much as someone else. Because what Jesus said and what Paul is saying is the gift is accepted based on what you're able to give. Whether it's just a little mite or with a big amount, it doesn't matter. It's giving from that graceful heart in that spirit of generosity. Now, as I finish here, I can imagine someone sitting through all of this, all of the, what I've just shared, feeling a little disappointed that I spent so much time focusing on the attitude that we have toward money instead of offering actual help with balancing the books, as the title suggested. But having the right attitude about money, an attitude shaped and formed as we recenter ourselves in the story of Jesus, is the most balancing thing that we can do. For you know, Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that there is a great line that you can cling to if you want to preach a prosperity gospel. If the good news is that you can become rich, you can quote 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 out of context all day long. But Paul was talking about another kind of wealth. He was talking about the same kind of wealth that Jesus talked about, that treasure that you store up for yourselves in heaven. And that's our challenge. I invite you to stand. I'm going to close with a word of prayer as we head off into our discussion tables, which is, for those who might be visiting with us this morning, an opportunity to talk about this morning's theme. I said at the onset, we don't talk a whole lot about money. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit this morning. Lord, we're grateful for the invitation to live generously. We're grateful for the invitation to avoid looking at the person beside us and, and passing judgment on one another. We're grateful for the reminder that we actually can't serve you and money or possessions and wealth at the same time. That it doesn't work that way, that our energies will be channeled either to you or, or to the stuff. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to discover the balance. What does it mean to put the right importance on the right things, to hang on to the right kind of treasure in life. What does it mean to have that kind of balance in our life? I pray that you would help us to understand that. And I also pray that you would help us to catch this vision for balance outside of our own families, outside of our own bank accounts, but a balance that spreads across our church community and across the world that we live in, that we would be the kind of people who are begging and pleading for an opportunity to give to the needs of those around us. God, I pray that you would give for those of us who have more than enough that you would challenge us 
to just have enough, that you would challenge us to move in that direction. For those of us who don't have enough, I, challenge, I ask that you would encourage us to trust in you, that you will provide through your people that we would all have enough. God, this is complicated stuff, and yet it's really simple stuff. And I ask that your spirit would help us to continue to process this as a church community today and in the days and weeks to come. In Christ's name, amen.